0: You guys can sing, and I like that. Last week, um, we looked at the rest of John chapter 12. We looked at verses 12 through 50, or 20 through 50, rather. This morning, we're only going to look at one verse. Um, But it's a verse that I believe is the hinge to the book of John. It's a verse that gives us assurance gives us hope, explains the reason for our faith by rooting it in the past and reminding us of the present and holding it out in front of us for the future, the hope that is yet to come. It's John 13, verse 1. Let me read this verse, just the one verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. Let's pray again. Father, we can sing the song. It is our prayer that you would firmly plant the truth in our hearts the truth of your word, the truth that Jesus having loved His own, loved them till the end. Help us to understand these things today. We pray in Jesus' name. There's a there's another hymn, um, The Love of God. O, o love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints' and angels' song. In one of the most famous, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, the Apostle Paul aims to show us still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love I am nothing if I give all uh, away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it's not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things Now I know in part, then I shall know know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Unfortunately, um, generally speaking at least, we have a distorted view of love. When the average American thinks of love, they think of either romantic love, which is increasingly seen as simply a physical act, we have a Gnostic view of love and life, or they think of sentimental feelings, or they even tie it to, to the phrase, love thy neighbor, but it actually works itself out as political action or social justice. All of these views are in reality, they're generally self-focused, and they use ourselves as the standard for love. The world says that love comes and goes. The world says that, that love is uncontrollable, that you can't help falling in love. The world says that if you're all out of love, then you should find somebody else to love. The world says that you're you're the center of your own love life. But God sets the standard for love. Not me. Not you. And specifically, as we're going to see today, um, Jesus sets the standard. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In the Old Testament... Love, the, the ultimate expression of love, is defined by, by God's chesed, his steadfast love. This is that, that consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God, the love with which he loves us. In the New Testament, chesed is embodied in Jesus Christ. Now, there's more to the character of the Father and the Son than love, right? We understand that. But there's no less than love. Sometimes we make the statement, God is love, and we either mean by that love is God, or all there is to God is love. And that's not true. God is also Justice and wrath and mercy and grace and kind and good and on and on, right? But the character trait of God the Son that we're going to focus on this morning, that I want us to see and I want us to dwell on today, is His love. John the Apostle, in writing this, right in this verse, he tells us of the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. And John chapter 13, verse 1, stands at at the very center of this gospel, of the gospel according to John. It stands at the very center of of John's teaching on the person and work of Christ. If you want to know Christ, if you want to know who He is and what He has done, you have to tackle this verse and all of its implications. Here's why I'm saying that this is the hinge or the center of the book of John. First of all, it marks the the beginning of the second half of this gospel. Not literally. um, We're almost kind of about two-thirds of the way through the gospel, something like that. Um, There are 21 chapters. But we finished what some have called, and I've mentioned before, the first book of John's gospel, the book of the signs. The the accounts of all the miraculous things that Jesus did. And John writes them down that we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And now we're beginning the second book, the book of the glory. Or some might call this the the account of his passion. Chapter 13 really marks the beginning of uh, what we often call Jesus' farewell discourse. And so from here through chapter 17, he's talking only with his disciples... And especially after, after Judas leaves a little bit later in this chapter, Jesus himself will do almost all of the talking. But this is also a hinge, this verse is also a, a hinge, because it looks back to what John has written so far, and, and, it, and it looks forward to what is yet to come. This passage that we face, these words that we're looking at this morning, they usher in one of the most interesting sections, actually, in all of the Gospels. And so for five consecutive chapters, beginning right here, John will tell us things about Jesus' ministry, things Jesus said, things Jesus did, things Jesus taught that none of the other gospel writers talk about. J.C. Ryle, the bishop of Liverpool, um, he, said, he wrote this about this passage. He said, "...in every age the contents of these chapters..." have been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. They have been the food and drink, the strength and comfort of all true-hearted Christians. Let us ever approach them with peculiar reverence. The place whereon we stand is holy ground. The words that Jesus says here. Andreas Kostenberger, another commentary writer, um, he says this. He says in chapter 13 of John... This new messianic community is cleansed, both literally and figuratively, first through the foot washing and then through the departure of Judas, the the betrayer. Jesus' performance of signs, demonstrating to the Jewish nation that he is the God-sent Messiah, uh, those signs no longer dominate the scene. Rather, the focus is on preparing this new messianic community, the church, For their spirit-guided mission to the unbelieving world, which significantly includes Jews. He says, hence the disciples are drawn into the unity, love, and mission of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it culminates in in, in John's great commission. John 20, 21, and 22, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And all of that begins here with John's description of the love of Christ. Now I mentioned that this verse, uh, it looks both to to the past and to the future. That's the phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, that's the past. He loved them to the end. Here John's looking toward the future from that moment. So there's, a, there's some signposts in this verse, time wise, past and future. But there's also historical and kind of theological markers or signposts here that, that root the context of these events, the context of this verse in the character of God. And that's in the opening phrase now the feast of the Passover, uh, now before the feast of the Passover, now before the feast of the Passover. So you may remember that the the Passover, which is still celebrated by many Jews around the world today, the Passover was that commemorative celebration that was established during the time of, of Israel's exodus from Egypt. God himself established this. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. I read a few different um, paragraphs from this, but let me just read verses 24 uh, through 27 Exodus twelve twenty four. this is instruction verse 24 says you shall observe uh, this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever and when you have come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall keep this service And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. This was a a festival, a feast of mercy and deliverance, of redemption and rescue, but one thing you might not remember about the Passover celebration is that part of the preparations for the feast was this instruction, also from Exodus 12. It begins in verse 14. So Exodus twelve fourteen: This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done in those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So they were to remove all of the leaven, yeast, right? All of it from their houses. Why? Because they were supposed to be a holy assembly, God has said. Luke tells us that Jesus would warn people, starting with his disciples in Luke's gospel, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then Paul picks up on the imagery of leaven, and he tells the Corinthian church this. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven to them represented and illustrated sin, hypocrisy, malice, and evil. And before the feast of the Passover, Jesus... In the next verses after this, is going to cleanse the feet of his disciples. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to wash their feet. And he's going to cleanse the assembly of the saints by removing Judas, the betrayer, the, the unrepentant sinner from their midst. He's actually going to send him out. As the city of Jerusalem goes about preparing for the festival by, by cleaning every house of any bit of leaven, Jesus is busy cleansing his people, cleansing his disciples. Jesus is preparing his household of faith for the slaughter of the true Passover lamb, whose shed blood will save the people from death. Again, in Exodus chapter 12, just verse 21, then the Moses, uh, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. The hour has come, Jesus says. The people have been warned, if you remember, as we talked about in chapter 12, Jesus is pleading with them over and over and over again. He's pled with them. He has been teaching them. He has offered signs. He has has called on them to repent, to cleanse their lives of the leaven of unrighteousness and to believe in the true Passover lamb who is about to be slain here. Yet he has come to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And now his hour has come. But if we're looking at the Passover, shouldn't the ones who did not receive him be the ones who were not passed over? Shouldn't the ones who did not receive him, John 1 verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Shouldn't they be the ones who are not passed over? Shouldn't they be the ones who experience death as in the exodus? Yes, except Romans chapter 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, when His hour had come, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what kind of demonstration of God's love, specifically of Christ's love, do we see here? Well, specifically, there are are three. We see His particular love, We see his love in the past, and we can see his love to the end. So let's begin with his particular love. Let me read the verse again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is his particular love. This is that statement there, having loved his own who were in the world, his own. This touches on a truth that we have seen spread throughout John's gospel. But this this is also, it's also covenantal. It is God keeping his promise to his people. In these two words, his own, there are hints of God's promises there. His own. Listen to some of God's promises to his own. He says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. His own. Later he says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. His own. Now therefore, if you in, it will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, his own. For you are a, holy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples. That's just from the Pentateuch, by the way. That's just from the first five books, the law, the the Torah. Shall we also speak of God's particular love in the new covenant from the prophets? Ezekiel writes this, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. His own, having loved his own. And and so the apostle Peter will write in his letter, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. His own. We could keep going. John's introduction in the book of Revelation. I read part of this earlier. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his, own, by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are his own. In this moment, right here. In the time and space of John chapter 13 verse 1. The people of God are in a desperate need of a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. A God who would demonstrate His particular love for His people by dying for them at the right time. They are in a desperate need of that. And He's standing there with them. This is truly the doctrine of election. The truth of Scripture that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, a people holy and blameless. A people set apart before Him. In love, He predestined a people for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He has called us His own. Now, because God is love, and He has so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... And because he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike as as a blessing and as a demonstration of his love, we need to see a distinction here between his general love and his particular love. James Montgomery Boyce, he was a pastor for many years of 10th um, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He he said this of this idea of God's general love and particular love. He said, God has done... God has done some things for all men, but on the other hand God has done all things for some men. He's referring to God's all-saving love for those who are his own. And we see this here. So, how do we as Christians come to be his own? How how do we become a part of the God's covenant people? How do we come to be His own? Well, the first thing that we can see, that we understand, is that Christ chose us. Christ chose us. John chapter 15 verse 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Charles Spurgeon gives us this this brief illustration of this truth. He says, A man may surely choose his own wife, and Christ chose his own spouse. He chose his own church. And while the scripture stands, that doctrine can never be eradicated from it. God chose the church. In his gracious love, he chose us. He made us his own by purchasing us, by redeeming us from our sins through the blood of his cross. And then he gave us, or really even, he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, Paul says. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christ chose us. Think of the meaning of that statement. Christ chose us. One of our favorite songs here, one of the verses says this. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? Why am I a part of God's people? How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Jesus Christ, in his particular love, chose us. But also, we were given to him by the Father. In John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39, he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God has given us to Christ. Here's how we can explain this. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 would say, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit entered into what we sometimes call a covenant of redemption. God chose a particular people to be united with the Son for their salvation and for His glory. It's Ephesians chapter 1. And as Jesus prays to the Father in John 17 verse 6, He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They are the people of John 1 12. They have believed, they have received the Son, and as a result, they have been given the right to be called children of God. Jesus Christ, in his particular love, chose us. We were given to him by the Father, and then finally, we were, we were born again by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3, when he was talking to Nicodemus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he will say in verse 5 of John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. At the moment of salvation, when God quickens our hearts, when he gives life to our dead bones, he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to sanctify us, to make us holy and to guarantee our salvation. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work to save us? They save us. Salvation is Trinitarian. Salvation belongs to our God," we would say. Father, Son and Spirit." Spurgeon again, he's got some great quotes, and he has a way with words, and he says this: "The fact that you are truly Christ's is the fountain of innumerable pleasures and blessings to your heart. Jesus calls us his own, his own sheep. His own disciples, His own friends, His own brethren, the members of His own body. What a title for us to wear, His own. Thus He distinguishes us from the rest of mankind and sets us apart unto Himself. My name shall be named on them, says He. Surely this is the highest honor that can be put upon us even in the last great day. We are His own. His own. This is his particular love for these, these young disciples with him this day. He's about to wash their feet. He's about to purify them. He's about to instruct them and, and pray for them. He's about, to, he's about to die for them. And they're about to abandon him. Yet he loves them. He loves them. And he, and he loves you. We need to keep our eyes on His love. We need to keep our eyes and our minds on His love. We need to look to His love. even Maybe despite our failures, even when we fail, we need to look to His love, even when we sin. However, we fall short of our calling. Believers are still Christ's own and can cling to his unfailing love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And John even says here that Jesus Jesus loved His own who were in the world. He, he knows where we live. He knows what's on the news every night. He knows what's going on in our families with our friends he knows your temptations he knows the pressures that we are under he knows our sin he knows that we still sin he knows the hatred that we sometimes face as Christians living in the world yet he loves his own and having loved them, but stop right there having loved them he says here in 13.1 having loved them this verse as i said is the very center of john's gospel so if we look backward if we look through the through the back through history through the books of the bible through the lens of the cross what do we see we see a pattern of his steadfast love we can see it rooted in creation John very uniquely began his account of Jesus' life, the, the beginning of the gospel according to John. He begins it, he begins it not with the promised messianic forerunner, John the Baptist, as both Mark and Luke begin with him. He, he doesn't begin it with a genealogy like Matthew does, establishing his right to the throne. He starts it at creation. Even describing Jesus' active role in creation. John 1, 1-3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Genesis 1-26, Let us make man in our image. From the very beginning of all things, Jesus Christ was active in creating us and in creating us as, as spiritual beings, as made in the image of God, capable, capable of fellowship with our Creator, called on us to, uh, to reflect God's glory to the world. Every single human being is fundamentally, uh, has the dignity of the, of the Imago Dei, the, the image of God. This is the result of Christ's love for us, even in creation. But Christ has also loved us in his incarnation, too. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, in his great love for us, he left the glories of heaven for the miseries, sufferings, and sorrows of the earth. Because of his great love for us. Yes, God promised throughout the scriptures that he would dwell with his people. And there is a time yet to come when he will dwell with us for all of eternity. And Jesus Christ's first advent, his first coming, was was not as a temple descending to earth, but as a man born in humility and poverty. He became what was not in order to create a people who are. He he condescended to the least of these in order to seat us with him in glory. We can see his love in the calling of his own disciples. Follow me, he had said to Matthew, as Matthew sat in his tax booth. The tax booth for the Jews was just sin. A booth of treachery and traitorness. Follow me, Jesus said. Think of how he called Paul. You remember, I'm sure. Knocking him down and blinding him as he was on his way to kill God's people. Think of how he called you. Every Christian, I believe, needs to look back at the love with which he has loved us and called us. Look back at the love in which His grace was poured out on us. Jesus called us not because of what we can give Him. He didn't, he didn't look at the resumes of the disciples and pick the best 12 for the job, right? He simply loved and called, follow me. And He called us to freedom. Freedom from worldliness Freedom from misery and bondage and sin and, and freedom to the riches of his glorious inheritance. And then we can see that he has loved them in the way in which he has taught them during their discipleship here. He taught them with complete patience and teaching. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He has led them as the as the always good shepherd. So Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3 is is true of them. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And that is true of us. And so we too can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. In the immediate, as we think of this, knowing that the cross is coming, John probably means to the end of his life, to the end of Jesus' life. He's about to face some very difficult days. One of them would betray him, most of them would scatter. Just when you think that, that he needed them the most, he was alone, yet he loved them to the end. He loved them to the cross. He loved them to the, to the point of death. The cross is the symbol of the extent of his love. It has become that for us. His love, really his love for his own, required him, compelled him to die in their place. But God shows his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Yet to the end means more than the cross. It means more than just simply to his death. He also loved them to their ends. The shepherd would be struck and the, and the sheep would soon be scattered, but he continues to love them, even after the ascension, until they received the unfading crown of glory, when they were united with him again. When they died. He loved them to the end, so he sent his spirit. John chapter 14, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. But finally, he also loves us to the end of history. He loves us until we are reunited with him. He loves us to the end of eternity. Romans chapter 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is the application today. This is what you take home with you and dwell on and meditate on is this. For I am sure that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. It's still happening. He's still loving you. Let's pray. Father, I, it is my prayer that, that we would be sure, that we would be sure as Paul is sure as he writes this, that we would be sure as your word says, that we could be confident that, our, that you would remove all doubt from our minds. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Amen.